0: Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and a psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes.
1: I can't wait to have breakfast with Kant.
0: Just a very bad wizard welcome to very bad wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, so you went on partially examined life. Don't you know that revenge sex is the worst kind of sex?
1: <laughs> Do you know the term eskimo twins <laughs> It means no, no. It, it, it means that we've now both had sex with the same person um, uh, so so we're p e l eskimo twins. But, you know, unlike you, I used a condom. I let you know. I, uh, yeah, I wish I wish I feel like I I I've been <laughs> in response. Yeah. yeah, I assume that you've listened to the whole uh, part one already and you have uh, detailed feedback about <laughs> I,
0: I do. I, I thought when you were talking about Zimbardo, you didn't describe his kitchen um, <laughs> as well as I thought you well, would, or uh, at least I could have. Uh, yeah. On yeah. Lombard Street. <laughs> <laughs> the the curvy one i haven't quite yet had time to listen but i look forward to that to Mm -hmm. to hear although you know i don't know like what if i hear you guys and you're all giggling and laughing and making fun of me and you know life life
1: hurts life life hurts that's part of the beauty and wonder of it is uh is to really truly value a relationship you have to know what it's like to almost lose it
0: are you in like uh, Wes Aldrin or whatever gonna gonna start like a new podcast like a
1: <laughs> We have three episodes already recorded. We're just waiting to release it. Gonna... Seth Paskin. <laughs> so was it fun? Uh, no, it was a great it was it was great. It was fun. It was uh it was even longer than our recording sessions, which I guess is why it's gonna be a two parter. But um but yeah, the one thing I do I gotta respect those guys for what it must take to edit an episode when you have oh. like four or five people on
0: <laughs> I, that that gives me like I feel sick just like thinking
1: about that. Yeah, like nightmares about.
0: I the other thing about that is I I have to report. Um, and this goes against everything I've said, but the chilling effect is
1: real. Uh, this is. This I was is... chilled.
0: I have been chilled.
1: You uh you've been chilled before, but usually it's like I was going to say something really rude and I thought twice about it. Is that what you mean by chilling? Like I...
0: No, like I actually. Didn't say the thing. So the way you posted it on the very bad wizards Twitter account was that you're testing our relationship by going on partially examined life, uh, and so my first reaction, just oh, like I'm, I'm I'm checking my computer. I'm at school. I'm on Twitter. Is like you know something like to respond, like I tapped that ass already, <laughs> or. Uh, sloppy seconds or something along those lines, and then I thought, oh, wait a minute, you know, with all these, you know, every day, like five new Hollywood formerly beloved figures comes out, like, and it turns out they've been scumbag and have sexually harassed all these women, and like, and now I'm thinking, if I do this, am I gonna get like shit for it? And I was like, it's not worth it. It's not that funny. It's not, it's not uh, like, but, but there was a principle involved because he, like I had already been on this show and here you were saying that you were testing the relationship. We're, My academic um, freedom was violated.
1: <laughs> why Why not view it as just a simple challenge to your creativity to come up with a, a better joke than a sloppy seconds one? You know, I I like how the, ter- the term chilled makes it sound like you're the one that's really being put out. Um, but I mean, should I not have said that? Yeah, I probably shouldn't have, right? Yeah, I actually don't think that like I mean, you that. call it you call it being chilled but I just think that that it's there is prudence about what to say and what not to say and some people on Twitter I, I actually think it's a perfectly like fine joke in in context that there are some things that there are other rules for what you want to say on on a forum like Twitter where there's a potential for retweeting we've had long discussions about this we're like I actually it's not worth it's not as you say, it's not worth the whatever reward might come. But I think right. that's, that's the case of like in Twitter particularly because, you know, very bad wizards, no context aside, much of what we say, I would never tweet. Right. Like,
0: <laughs> it's just that the, the cost of that was letting you get away with people thinking that you had been on partially examined life and I hadn't.
1: Right, so so this is why and that's an
0: injustice.
1: Uh, this is this is why I was perplexed that your only two options being to to make a, a joke like that or let it slide, you you really just could you could have made any of a number of jokes that <laughs> that might have been funny and pointed that out. Like I can imagine Kevin Spacey being like, "Dude, I was totally gonna sexually assault this young kid." Yeah. But, like, I thought, no, you know? Like, with the Weinstein stuff, everybody's just, like, like there's all this pressure on me not to rape. Like, fucking chilling effect.
0: I don't know if that's a fair analogy. <laughs> oh, but- Kevin Spacey. So, like, now, like, if I watch L.A. Confidential or... <laughs>
1: these are the true guess, casualties of this of these scandals is our I mean, enjoyment of, of the movie seven and, and
0: well in seven he's like a serial killer so like he's if anything worse than how he is in real life but
1: but but you're not allowed to admire his acting chops um as much as you used to be um, because you're like, oh, just like seven
0: but we have to like come up with complaints about his performance now <laughs> Yeah. You know, he's overplaying
1: it a little bit. It turns out Kevin Spacey wasn't actually acting in 7. I'll tell you that Kaiser Soze wouldn't have been caught, like, doing Ah, this spoiler. Shit. Dear listeners, just a quick aside. It might seem really weird for the remainder of this conversation that we don't bring up Louis C.K. and the allegations against him at all. That's only because the allegations didn't surface until about five hours after we recorded this conversation. Of course... We didn't have the time to re-record it, and you know us, we would have talked about Louis CK quite a bit. We just didn't get the chance maybe it's for to say for another episode and I, and we've touched on it in conversations before, but uh you and I were talking a, a bit about like what like really like genuinely all jokes aside, um whether in a descriptive way, knowing that somebody has done bad things ruins their art. And then, in a normative way, whether right, like under what conditions you ought to actually say, "I'm not going to watch these this this guy's movies anymore." Like, what? Because like, I know some people, right? Like Netflix just actually, you know, canned Kevin Spacey, right? No, he, there, there's no more. Um, what's that show? Um, uh, House of Cards. House of Cards.
0: Well, well, I think that's different, though. Like, actually being the person to hire him and pay him a shitload of money to do a show is different than appreciating the things that are out there. That's right. Not, but yeah, but
1: I, I think the business decision is informed by the fact that people won't want to watch it. Right. So, so among the reasons to not support somebody by hiring them, if they're bad, if they're bad people, I think yeah. one of them in my, perhaps I'm being cynical, but is simply that people won't like, won't want to support Netflix. Right. They'll, they'll be caught up in the storm they
0: yeah, they'll boycott it or they'll, um, I don't know. Like for me, it's, um, it's a little like the baseball steroids thing where, you know, if I was a hall of fame voter and yeah. you know, some people have been in on steroids, but you don't know everybody, you know, so let's say we stop watching all Miramax movies from the past, all Kevin Spacey movies. Then there's we're going to be watching movies where there were scumbags involved and we just don't know about them. I I I think I can separate the what they did and their their the art that they produce versus who they are. And it's so like, I guess especially with someone like Harvey Weinstein who, fortunately, you're not looking at or it's, it's not sort of obvious what his imprint on the film was, but I would say that even for like a Kevin Spacey or a, like, I'm not going to watch LA confidential differently because I know who like,
1: but so, so do you not catch the intuition that at least in some cases you would, or, or at least you think that you ought to. So, so here's, here's a case where, where it definitely has affected me, right? Like I, I can no longer, and it makes me sad, but I, I can no longer, without even making the normative judgment just in a descriptive level i can 't watch Cosby do like the Cosby show or Cosby stand up in the same way that I used to be able to like that 's just true right. now like it's sort of ruined it for me um because and as you say, weinstein isn 't in the movies like if you know if anything, he's just like the financier or whatever like stand up comedy especially is a like it's it feels like a reflection of the person's character even more than scripted movies or tv shows right like like what i am appreciating by watching his stand-up is him as a person yeah and i and it's harder for me to do i just can't
0: well i think stand-up is kind of like that though right like stand-up it's like you're making a personal connection i i I mean i think there are things like that you know i actually you know Podcasts. So the podcast that I listen to, if I found out that one of the people, you know, had done just horrible things, sexual harassment, sexual assault, um, sexual assault of children, you know, like that would change because you make the... It's almost like you feel like you have a personal bond with the people that... um, And I think stand-up is definitely in that category. An actor, though, to me, isn't as much... You know, if they're a good actor, they disappear in their roles, and you don't think of it as that person. Um, as right. much, as, yeah. That's
1: funny. That's a that's an interesting distinction. I, I but I think there's something right about it, and 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 that that intuition would actually make it harder for me to um, say say Tom Cruise. You know, like like mur- brutally murdered somebody or raped them. Um, Tom Cruise feels like Tom Cruise in every movie, right. so when I, when I see Tom Cruise, like I probably would have more problem watching Tom Cruise films if I was really morally opposed to to him as a person than I would be like Gary Oldman, who really right. disappears into the part, right? Like where you are like, wow, he he's like the pimp in True Romance and Beethoven, like it like neither of those seems to be Gary Oldman, but rather something that he's channeling. Um,
0: yeah, no, that's right, and also. <laughs> I wonder if it make. Here's another possible distinction: if they're playing the hero or like a like a, like a you know a upright virtuous person, <laughs> will it be hard to see them in that role versus someone like Gary Oldman or Kevin Spacey who usually plays a kind of sleazy character anyway. So you know, even House of Cards, right? Like he's a, yeah. he's. I, I only watched the first season of that, and I barely got through that. But like. <laughs> that's you know he said he's a terrible guy yeah in in house of cards he's a serial <laughs> right. if tom, killer in if seven. like tom
1: hanks like turned out to be right. somebody like that you'd be like oh my god <laughs>
0: <laughs> then it would be a little hard to go back and and, and watch him in like apollo 13 or something
1: right and th- and that's why i think the bill cosby thing is especially you know Especially jarring because like the Cosby show was this sort of, you know, good influence um, in, in the way America viewed say like middle class black people like he okay. he was just taken to be like a, a, a groundbreaking actor and just like seemed like a good guy and and then you're sort of forced to to have this this jarring knowledge he poses a character so at odds with how he apparently was exactly that
0: the, <laughs> the cognitive dissonance is too strong
1: right and so i think that that just from a like a psychological perspective that that explains why in some cases like i'm more i'm more prone to say i can't support this person's art when really what i'm saying is i personally can't deal with the dissonance that I have when I'm seeing this person and and the other person I was going to bring up like when you're talking about actors is I mean even directors like Woody Allen who who stars and directs in his like his movies feel like from what I've heard feel like more of an extension of him as a person and so like you're really you you really like financial support aside which is a whole other question like even bootlegging um, his movies, like I feel like when you're watching him, you're watch a, a movie of his, you're watching him and sort of a you're making a personal connection with him in a way that's somewhere between an actor reading lines and say a podcaster whispering yeah. in your ear. Right.
0: But Woody Allen's characters are similar to like the guy, what he did. I mean, he yes, he 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 did a sleazy thing. Marrying Soon-Yi, who was at one point, not officially his stepdaughter, but certainly somebody that was in, he was in the role of, of, of step. But yeah, I mean, he's still married to her. I think that was a real thing. They've it's been married for like 25 dude. years. They're like, <laughs> I mean, he, he did a movie, Manhattan, maybe his best movie where like he's with a 17 year old like they're not, he's not he's not high it's not like his movies are are hiding that this is a flawed and deeply troubled uh human being I, I I I
1: yeah I I actually don't know much about the details of his nefarious character but 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 it's not as if by watching his movies you're like you know what wouldn't surprise me Is if he totally (laughs) like Mary's stepdaughter, right? Exactly. (laughs) But I have to say, you know, after after sort of years of Pornhub, like uh, step stepdaughters (laughs) and and stepfathers (laughs) having sex seems to totally normalize. That's nothing.
0: (laughs) It's almost like you have to introduce a third relative for it to even
1: <laughs> approach <my> perversion. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, I want to resist that line because there, it's true that there is a way in which if what we needed to do was morally evaluate all of the people who whose art we enjoyed, then we would probably end up having to discard a lot of it. But that doesn't mean that once I find out that there's this like, you know, but somebody was a moral monster that 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 it wouldn't influence whether or not I want to enjoy their art. Like, I, I don't have to bite the bullet and then, like, go through my catalog, right? Like, I couldn't enjoy the Wu-Tang Clan at all if, like, I if I aggregated the number of bad things that they did and use that as a metric. I mean,
0: that's an interesting—rappers are interesting. There was a thing with Dre, right, where yeah. uh, he punched a woman right. or something. He, he slapped D Barnes, a reporter. Right. Um, yeah. Like a lot of these guys, uh, I'm sure, have done terrible things. right? Yeah. But the, their music well, right. is sort of about that to a large extent. I mean, Eminem is sort of the king of this where... He's done some bad things, but nothing nothing probably remotely as bad as the character that he portrays right. himself to be in his music. So does that help or hurt the situation? Does that, like...
1: Right. Like, I wouldn't be tempted to say if it turns out Eminem really did murder a girlfriend. I wouldn't be really tempted to say. But, like, come on, guys. Like, he's been talking about it this whole time. Like... <laughs> Yeah, rap is is an interesting case where like and and I I don't think I have to say that like I'm a, like I'm a huge fan so of of <laughs> of the genre, but it does pose problems. I remember when um, like. When people were especially up in arms, there was a period of time where people were especially up in arms about the content of rap lyrics and, and censorship. And, and a lot of rappers were targets of, of censorship or sort of moral majority kinds of calls to like eliminate this kind of foul music from influencing our kids. And rappers would often turn to the analogy of, uh, you know, they would say, you know, guys, it's just art. Arnold Schwarzenegger in his movies kills like 30 people. And nobody's saying that Arnold that you should boycott Arnold Schwarzenegger's movies. Um, that's what we're doing, right? When we when we make raps and we talk about violent stuff, like it's it's a role we're playing. But that always has been inconsistent, in my mind, with the the very sort of core principle. The core one of the core values of rap is that you're you're. You, you're sincere
0: you're not fronting but you're, you're being not,
1: authentic right yeah so if, if you're actually like making up like all of these things that you've done right then you would actually be an object of ridicule in right. fact that you, is a very like, common
0: diss right you'll get torn <laughs> apart in, in
1: a battle yeah jay-z famously dissed Nas by 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 saying i showed you my gun on tour with large professor and then i hear your rhyme about your tech in your dresser or whatever, right? He's like, basically, basically, you're looking at my life and you're pretending to write about it, um, and that that inauthentic. <laughs> That's how Ja Rule like his career was destroyed because, <laughs> right. right? Yeah, uh, studio rapper, like you have to you, studio gangster, yeah, and and so so there is a case where it's like kind of like a poet where you're like, I no, I'm banking on the fact that the things that rappers are saying are in some measure an accurate reflection of who they are as a person, um, <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, that's a tight balance for them to walk, actually. (laughs) Right. Uh, All right. Um, So today we are going to be discussing Moral Luck, another Thomas Nagel essay from that same collection, Mortal Questions, which we strongly recommend our listeners to to purchase. Now, we have no connection to Thomas Nagel, but man, is this a great collection of essays we we might go we might dip back into this yeah but here is another beautifully written piece about moral responsibility and and the way luck affects and doesn't affect our judgments of whether people are responsible so should we take a break and come back and talk about it yeah let's take a break
1: to very bad wizards um thanks everybody sincerely for for all of your support um in particular i I have to admit i'm a little nervous for this episode because the amount of good feedback we got from last episode was was so voluminous um we got a ton of emails there's a i was just looking at the facebook discussion a ton of, of comments um we really appreciate that thank you for everybody uh uh, engaging with us and 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 writing to us if you would like to. And at a really high level, too. At, like, a, at a good high, like, yeah, yeah. Not like YouTube comments, like actual, like actual careful. Often careful like comment. framing our
0: points much better than we had done on the show.
1: Yeah, sometimes somebody will say something like in three sentences that summarizes what I was trying to say in like 30 minutes. And I'm like, God yeah. oh, damn it. <laughs> but, you know, like, what would we do if if we were able to say everything so efficiently? <laughs> there would be...
0: We would write papers. We just took like forty-five <laughs> minutes to talk about whether we should watch Kevin Spacey.
1: That's right. I think this
0: isn't going to live up
1: to last episode. <laughs> I think that's over. Uh, right. We could have same same thing could have been achieved with a Twitter poll. Uh, so thank you. If you want to, if you want to uh, write to us to to give us your feedback, you can email us verybadwizards at gmail dot com. You can go to our Facebook page. Um, you can tweet to us at verybadwizards at tamler at peas. Um, you can now join in on our our growing uh, subreddit, Very Bad Wizards subreddit, and Patreon. Like us on Instagram. You can like us on Instagram. Rate us um, on iTunes. Rate us on iTunes. And if you want to show some more appreciation, you can support us by going to our support page, VeryBadWizards.com slash support, where you can uh, donate money Uh, Via PayPal, you can use our Amazon link to shop as you would normally, and we get a little piece of that, or you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash verybadwizards, and there you can sign up to support us um, per episode, and we really, really appreciate all of that. Uh, We thank you all from the bottom of our hearts, and Tamler isn't going to say this, and I'm sure we'll talk about it more, but you can also pre-order Tamler's book on Amazon, uh, Why Honor Matters, and I myself did so just yesterday um when does this come out in may comes out in early may yes early may may yeah. 8th i think
0: um
1: i assume you have finished writing it it is it is <laughs> going to galleys and i haven't read it at all it's going to be a surprise i mean the big surprise will be that i that i won't read it for a long time but,
0: but. i can send it to you now because now you can't give feedback now, yes. There was isn't pressure <laughs> to give feedback. You've, I did that. That was one of the nicest, like most uh, altruistic things I've ever done.
1: I, I. It's not that I don't believe that you are motivated by altruism. I also believe that maybe you didn't want my feedback, so I'm personally offended um, in, <laughs> in some measure.
0: Aside from the editors that looked at it and who, who gave comments, and Jen, my wife, who is. Pretty instrumental in helping it shape it, also, and you know, and 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 my agent. Not, I, I really didn't show it to anybody in time for them to give me detailed comments. Uh, there was one person, Vidi Yao. She had, unlike you, asked. Repeatedly to see it,
1: <laughs> you had. I I asked you, motherfucker. Uh, I don't know about that. Uh, um, the the. Perha- we, and, perhaps and you know, I-
0: once it comes out, it'll definitely be like a Patreon. We could there'll be a level of support on Patreon or on you know where you could like we'll figure something out it? for some book giveaways.
1: the My favorite suggestion was that we give away copies signed by me. <laughs> <laughs> right. um actually what i'll do is i'll go through and write my comments in the margin you know and that that coffee criticisms (laughs) yeah (laughs) like wtf question mark exclamation point uh i roll emoji (laughs) so yeah so thank you for all the support um and and uh we 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 really appreciate it it keeps us going and hopefully this episode isn't substantially worse than the previous one because i think that was our peak i think we peaked very, very bad wizards what, in the last episode? In the last episode, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, the holes, you know, you're <laughs> not gifted a, a study about, like, tongues and holes. Oh, I got to give some credit to an emailer. I think, like, something that for the very bad wizards when we die, like, this could go on our gravestone, on our joint gravestone. <laughs> Dear Tamler and David, where Sam Harris explores philosophy and psychology with his big toe, you guys definitely use the tongue. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It's 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 Pithy. so many levels, you know? <laughs> Just levels. <laughs> that was, it was great.
0: Nelson Doris, thank you for that. That that put me in a great mood when I <laughs> I will not be buried
1: next to you, so it'll have to be two epitaphs.
0: <laughs> well we'll both put them on our gravestone. Wait, are you getting cremated or something? Is that what you I people will be. do? <laughs> All right. So today we're still trying to live off the glory of last episode, and we're talking about another Thomas Nagel essay, an essay that I know very well. I've probably read this essay 15 times, taught it in most free will classes that I've taught. Um It is called Moral Luck. It really gets in eight or nine pages to the heart of the debate over moral responsibility. This is actually a companion piece originally to uh, Bernard Williams' essay, also called Moral Luck, which have we discussed that on this podcast? I I don't
1: think we have, actually. Okay.
0: That's also a good one. Um, Both of them are addressing this issue of moral luck, which I think can be defined as when you are morally evaluated, either praised or blamed, for for actions, for character traits that are the result of factors that are ultimately beyond your control. This is something that happens all the time, but at the same time, something that we think might be unjustified. And It's a tribute to how great this essay is that it leads off with a long (laughs) quote from my old friend, Immanuel Kant, uh, who believed that the whole idea of moral luck was incoherent, that it is incoherent to blame people for something beyond your control. And so here's the quote, the goodwill Kant is talking about, is not good because of what it affects or accomplishes or because of its adequacy to achieve some proposed end. It is good only because of its willing, i.e., it is good of itself. And regarded for itself, it is to be esteemed incomparably higher than anything which could be brought about in favor of any inclination or even of the sum total of all inclinations." even if it should happen that by the particularly unfortunate fate or by the niggardly provision of a stepmotherly nature, can I say that this will should be wholly lacking in power to accomplish its purpose. And if even the greatest effort should not avail it to achieve anything of its end. And if there remained only the goodwill, it would sparkle like a jewel in its own right as it, as something that has its full worth in itself, usefulness or fruitlessness can neither diminish nor augment this worth, this worth of the will. So he's saying, essentially, all that matters is the pure will, your intention, your pure act of will. That's the only thing that can be judged, not, you know, what happens because of your intention or maybe what led you to um, make if what led you to to make the choice with the will, if that is something beyond your control, like well that doesn 't count in your favor it 's just the pure act of will that 's the only proper subject for moral evaluation, according to Kant I think there is a way in which, certainly, according to Nagel, that we agree with this, um, at least in theory, at least in the abstract, that it does seem sort of unfair to blame people for actions that, for whatever reason, are the result of factors that they have no control over, just just luck. And and this, you know, this is why people like Dirk Paraboom, Galen Strawson, Sam Harris, this is why they are moral responsibility skeptics. Why I used to be a moral responsibility skeptic is because um, as Nagel will lay out and we'll talk about, it really does seem like ultimately all of our actions trace back to factors beyond our control. And we'll talk about the details of it in a second. The last thing I'll just point out in this uh, introduction is there's a parallel here to the absurd paper. Um, In the absurd, Nagel is saying that We have these two sort of stances that, on the one hand, we can always look at our lives and our actions as ultimately... Ultimately, there's no justification for, for anything that we do, and all of what we do throughout our lives is somewhat arbitrary, but at the same time, we can't help but take our lives and our actions and our choices seriously. So we have these two clashing perspectives um, that are incompatible, but that we can't help but feel both of them. Not always at the same time, but we have the capacity to be in both frames of mind. And that's what Nagel thinks about this. Like, we have the capacity to understand the incompatibilist argument, to, in- to understand the skeptical argument, and to agree with the skeptical argument, and to see ourselves as just uh, a part of a larger portion of a chain of events in the universe but then we also from the inside see ourselves as agents they can't be reconciled but that's just it like there's no resolving it it's there's just pointing it out
1: so okay so i i agree with everything that you said i only want to run us back a little bit because you mm-hmm. you've in some ways sort of you know, Summarized yeah. his conclusion in a way that I think it might help to to build to that conclusion um the way that he does because I think one of the real strengths of this paper and I agree with you it's it's just wonderfully written I mean I, it's I read this and I as I was it felt like a a, a mystery, like a, a compelling mystery short story that I was reading. I was like, "Oh, what what's going to happen now?" Um, it's it's just very well done, and I yeah. think that that one of the <clears throat> the real uh, sources of this ri- the richness of this writing is that he doesn't start with the problem of determinism, right? He doesn't actually he doesn't sp- spell out why, uh, why in fact there's nothing but, you know, but, but matter in motion and in the way that, that people often start off the problem with free will, he starts with what seems like a very local problem. And, and that local problem, he says, look, we have very clear, compelling intuitions for both of these things. One is that we should only be blamed for things we can control or praise for things we can control. And that seems obvious that in fact, seems like what it means to blame somebody. It means that they could have done otherwise in, in a way that, that, um, that, we, and we're not talking about metaphysical freedom or anything. We're just talking about like the things that originated through some sort of agency um, are up for moral evaluation in a way that things that did not originate from that agency are not so, uh, and, and so, so he gives a few examples of how this fits not just with Kantian thought. He's just, I think, using Kant to point out that this is a common way in which we think. Where everybody can agree that, yes, this is the case. Like, accidentally doing something, it might be harmful and it might be bad in terms of, of uh, evaluatively bad. But not blameworthy bad, right? If I accidentally bump into you and you fall and hurt yourself... It's very different than if I push you, where we seem to still blame even when, upon reflection, things are outside of our, our control. And so the, the, the tension between those examples is something that I really like because I, I, for instance, as I'm reading it, don't yet have to undermine all of human agency. I only have to undermine I only have to deal with cases where I clearly think that it's obvious and intuitive that somebody deserves moral blame. And upon like fairly minimal reflection, I realize that in fact the person couldn't control the outcome in a way that normally I would say, yeah, that is a totally like reasonable reason to suspend my, my blameworthiness. Right? No,
0: that's right. And as we talk about, it, let's just talk about the different kinds of moral luck. He gives four kinds of, and shows Just the local clash of our intuitions in each of them. And the first is what he calls luck in the way things turn out. So the the kind of classic examples of this is the truck driver who um, fails to check his brakes when he should and is driving home. The brakes go out and a little girl happens to cross the street, and he hits the little girl and kills the little girl. He is going to blame himself terribly for uh, his role in the death of the little girl. We'll probably blame him um, for his role in killing the girl. And yet, had he taken that same ride and the brakes also gone out, but there had been no little girl that happened to cross the street when, when he was driving, we would, have, we would still blame him a little bit for his negligence, but it wouldn't be—and he would probably still blame himself— but it wouldn't be anywhere near as severe, the blame. And yet he has no control over whether a little girl happens to go out into the street or not. So it seems like really bad moral luck if the girl— happens to go out into the street or you could say good moral luck if the girl doesn't right i mean this right. is also true with any drunk driving case right Doesn't that doesn't, yeah. that doesn't uh lead to
1: a, a serious accident
0: or yeah and there's a lot of examples like
1: this yeah i mean you can obviously say like obviously there is a difference in outcome that might actually matter in terms of the way in which you choose to punish somebody um but But that aside, right, like there are obviously differences in the consequences that you might want to take into account in your overall evaluation of the situation. But the truth is that the mental state of the agent, the intentions, the negligence, the judgment, whatever failure um, are identical in both cases. The only difference is that through, through zero control of the agent, there happened to be a little girl on the street. And the difference between those two cases is more than just one of, like, I'm sad for the consequences, but rather one of, no, you are a a murderer. You are are in the state of blame. Uh, You are culpable for... um,
0: So we just judge these cases differently. I think drunk driving is actually, you know, in my classes, I'll sometimes ask how many of you, if you're being honest with yourselves have have ever had too much to drink and gotten in a car behind the wheel and like half the students will raise their hand and nobody it's not like people are they're a little ashamed you know and it's not but it's not like they're looked at as these like like monsters. murderers or yeah. potential but you know uh if somebody gets really drunk and gets into an accident that leads to the death of you know innocent people that we just if we're being honest with ourselves we just really do look at those two cases differently and at the same time and this is that first clash we can't help but think that there's something fundamentally unfair about that
1: yeah right and it and that that is the great the level at which that the the simple reflection on this point uh reveals a a clash in your intuitions in a way that that sort of as i was saying before you don't have to be a free will denier free will skeptic in order to arrive at this you simply have to be a normal human being who would find both points very obvious and and these examples really bring to light a, a glaring inconsistency in the way that we're using control um in order to to make these moral judgments um yeah. So that's the first kind of moral luck that he discusses. I keep saying this, but I it's r I I think it's very important to say that it's it's not merely that that we're saying that out bad outcomes are worse than good outcomes. It is that we really seem to have a different attitude toward the person who made the same exact took the same exact action through the same exact decisions. Right? It's right, because it's it, it's trivial to say that bad things are bad. Um, right? So that a bad outcome is more bad than a, a not bad outcome. But but really, it's our stance toward the person where we think of the drunk driver as the moral monster, but the people who drive drunk home and get safe um, are just like, kind of just stupid people, right? Or like, ah, bad judgment, don't do it again. So I mean, then the second
0: that we can talk about is luck of the circumstances you find yourself in. So he uses the example of You know, just an ordinary German citizen in Nazi Germany um, will find himself presented with just through his circumstances an opportunity to either display extraordinary heroism or become a utterly depraved human being just because he happened to be born at that time and place. You know, the ones who who didn't resist and who became members of the Third Reich and the Nazi Party, we are, judge very harshly, you know, and in, in some cases judged, you know, at Nuremberg. W- without like knowing how we would have acted, I've never been put in a situation where I had to make a choice whether to join this party of, of, of pure evil or whether to risk my life resisting it. So again, it's it's like they didn't choose to be born at that time and be presented with that dilemma, and yet we still judge them harshly, for for their role in in the holocaust and that's something that is really true today people are sometimes put in a situation they just happen to find themselves in a situation i mean maybe you guys talked about this this was the whole point of the milgram experiments right
1: right and and in in a very local way like even in a singular event like you you might say that that um that just by dint of being put in the Milgram experiment, right, we're able to evaluate the people who did this in a way that we would not be able to evaluate anybody else. Like you've never, you know, I've never been put in in a situation where my my metal was tested, my moral metal was tested in that way. You know, even the, you know force majeure. Like well, I've never been force majeured right. in in a way in which like it could be revealed that I I act cowardly or act bravely. Um, well, he and... bravely protected his iPhone. <laughs> that's right. Well, I do have the new iPhone and 10 gloves. And, uh, yeah. and it's, uh, it's very... Well, that would be
0: more... Excuse <laughs> <That would> be... <laughs> <laughs> um, 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 No, right. That's a, that's a perfect example of luck of circumstances. The force majeure, the avalanche. For those of you who haven't listened to that episode, go listen to it. I really liked that episode, actually. Yeah, it was fun. Um, or watch the movie if you haven't. <laughs> yeah, watch the movie and then see it. But yeah, like you're in an avalanche and all of a sudden... You know, you just an act of pure instinct is going to determine how you're judged as an, you know, somebody watching the situation, but even by members of your own
1: family. And Uh, it's just it's just, you know, it's just as true for praiseworthy acts. You know, there are there are cases in which a person is only able to be a moral hero if they are put in a situation in which they can act heroically there might be tons of, of quote-unquote moral heroes who who have never been able to act in in a heroic way because their life just simply didn't allow for it and again it really is the case where you say it, it's obvious that if i press a button and by complete accident that button ends up you know opening a trap door that that freed a prisoner um should you be praised for that you would say no obviously no you had zero zero epistemic knowledge of what you were doing you had zero control over the mechanism there's it's obvious that you don't deserve praise but the point again is being walking by a uh, person you know a child drowning in a shallow pond is that just as uncontrollable as, you know, as any other accident.
0: Or like, you know, the, the there's a famous case that Zimbardo talks about where a child fell into the subway um, and a guy leaped down there, saved right. the child, got out of there just before a train was coming. You know, obviously a hero, I've never been put in that situation, don't know, would love to think that I would do that, Have no have no idea whether I would do that and I'm... Maybe a little skeptical. I don't know. But the point—but the, But then what Zimbardo says is whenever these kinds of things happen and you interview the people and ask why they did it, it's like they'll say, it, it just happened. Like right. they they will talk about it as if they didn't even have agency. And that doesn't seem to take away from our judgment of praise in, uh, in any way. It's like, wow. Uh, right. That they would just do that, and it's just second nature. Now, this could lead to the third kind of luck that he talks about, which is constitutive luck—the the the luck of how you you happened to be built, like how you're wired, what kind of character and personality you happen to have, because nobody trains themselves to, you know, consciously trains themselves to be a person that will jump into a subway track. I mean, you know, firefighters do, yes, or whatever, right. you know, exactly. like
1: that kind of, yeah, but yeah. you, nobody's going around, uh, I mean, perhaps. This, Most people aren't, yeah. and,
0: and a lot of the people in these, who act in these
1: heroic ways don't, and so, and yet. She says, uh, to some extent, such a, is this what you're talking To some extent, such a quality may be the product of earlier choices. To some extent, it may be amenable to change by current actions, but it is largely a matter of constitutive bad fortune. Yet people are morally condemned for such qualities and esteemed for others equally beyond control of the will. They are assessed for what they are like. In my intro psych course, I give a, um, I talk about sort of the early origins of personality differences. Right, so uh, you can you can look at the reactions of an infant. Um, and you can use various measures. So one one way in which you can assess this is what, what researchers refer to as temperament. Um, you can sort of scare a baby, like dangle a novel toy in their face. And they will usually react with some amount of, of distress. So they start crying. You can measure... How much they cry, like how much their their body moves, and you can measure how long it takes for them to calm down after they 've started crying, and this actually turns out to be predictive of adult levels of neuroticism and negative affect there are these other great examples and I show a video maybe i 'll put a link to it of little kids who are um, given the opportunity to to engage in a little task it 's like a, they can jump off of a you know a small uh, little structure that was built just for, for this, where they can jump up from that little structure onto a pillow. And it's fun, right? But it's kind of tall and, it, you know, you see these little two-year-olds who climb up on the ledge and... They're just really trepidatious. They're like really, really scared to jump off of it. And then there are some who just get up there and they jump right. and they love it. You know, that seems to have uh, t- to be predictive. It seems as if those are the origins of these personality traits in adulthood, where some people just are less afraid of risk. They're less, they're more prone to approach new things and 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 try new activities, even if they're risky. And some people are just really, really trepidatious and and they they find new situations averse and they avoid danger right so some people I ask my class you know how many of you think that if you haven't been skydiving that this is like something that you've always wanted to do and how many of you think this is the most stupid insane idea and you got a nice split where where yeah. right this is and I tell them we might have been able to predict your decision by just looking at you as a baby now if that's true and those constitutions, those differences uh, are what predicts whether or not you would jump in front of the train to save somebody or whether you would cower in fear uh, in the corner when the Nazis were coming. Um, then you can call it virtue, but it's it's not – you really don't have that much control over it, right? There's Right.
0: And yet – so you, so what's happening in this argument, right, is he's you, kind of par- paring down – The possible, so he's like, okay, like, let's say we stop judging people for the, the way that things turn out you know let's say we punish drunk drivers and drunk That's drivers right. who kill people the same just for the drunk drivings just by the level of neg- negligence let's say we really make a, an effort to judge people not according to their circumstances you know we see the milgram experiments we see how hard it is to resist authority so you know we'll try to go a little easier on but so now, what is left for us to judge people over? Well, how about the kind of character that they are, independent of you know their the circum- the, the specific circumstances they find themselves in, and independent of the way their intentions and their actions you know actually happen to turn out um, But we can at least judge them for their intentions and their character and who they are as people and then Nagel says but so much of that, he's not even suggesting all of it. Although I think the next form of luck will will go on to sort of clinch that. But undeniable that so much of our character is is shaped in early childhood by early experiences and our and our DNA.
1: Right. I was going to say it does it. My example was biological, but it doesn't need it need not be right. You you, you could envision somebody's born as a blank slate, but but the environment provides no, you know, like early conditioning doesn't provide an out. Right.
0: right? If Skinner was right, the conclusion would be the same. So the so so, you know, even if you don't think that accounts for your whole character and your whole temperament and your whole personality, it accounts for a lot of it and our judgments don't seem to only judge people because first of all, there would be no way for us to know if, even if people, you could make a distinction between, okay here's the hand I'm dealt personality wise, but I'm going to make this, uh, I think Nagel says, monumental effort of will to overcome, let's say I've been I've been given a very jealous and stingy character, like. but I'm let's, going say, to... let's say. Let's yeah. say. Let's <laughs> say. <Yes. laughs>
1: because
0: I'm Jewish, and you know, like that's that. I mean, that's the implication. I get it. So. But I'm going to make this effort to, you know, be more generous and and not begrudge the success of my peers. But the fact is that, you know, when you have people who are just naturally generous, naturally sunny characters, you know, people who are just who are in good moods most of the time, people who seem to just always want to be offering help, always want to be um, asking about other people, people who are just good, generous characters, we don't try to figure out how much of that is through an effort of will and how much of that is just natural affability. We just like that person more and praise that person and we think they're good people and we judge them better than we judge the people who aren't like that. You know, like we can, but we can, we can step back and say, well, that's kind of not fair. But as soon as we're out of that theoretical perspective, we're back to just judging those people right who they
1: are you know uh, uh to to give an example it's probably relevant to 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 both of us I, there when it comes to teacher evaluations um sometimes i'm struck by the just inherent unfairness of the whole process where I, I have colleagues who are by their nature just painfully shy but they're good researchers and there's a good reason why they are where they are um but students when they're evaluating their teaching ability are not kind to those people. Whereas, you know, I have to say by, by, by luck of the draw, I am just have a positive demeanor normally. Right. So I, I smile a lot and, and I do not think that, are, that are there the is. You Yeah. <laughs> I smile like a motherfucker. Um, in other countries, people mock me because smiling this much just means you're dumb and i i know that that affects my teacher evaluations and it's not it's not that the content that i'm delivering is is necessarily better or stronger or anything like that it is just complete accident um but you know i take it
0: yeah i mean and teacher evaluations are different because part of being a good teacher arguably is being affable and and putting students in a in a mood where they might be more enthusiastic to learn i mean that's lucky But I don't know to what extent those are moral judgments or just judgments of your effectiveness at your job.
1: Right. The 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 analogy I'm trying to draw really is one that um, that students really genuinely are believing that this might be a product of my efforts at good teaching. And so they're rewarding me. um, Right. In a way that I don't feel that I deserve, nor do I feel that somebody else deserves who has put in even more effort right at right uh, through a monumental effort of will, they're still shy of my, my whatever positive demeanor. This um, seems like a
0: convoluted way to boast about your high teaching evaluations, y- which I well, don't blame you for because <laughs> I know that that's probably, you know something that could have been predicted by like
1: how you were as a (laughs) as a one-year-old one uh listener emailed us to talk about the halo effect which is that attractive people are treated better in all sorts of ways and this is another case in which like it really is true that that not just through the direct about positive evaluation of attractive people but through the way in which like attractive people are treated throughout their life they might get cultivate personality traits that make them more likable. Um, just because of the way they 've been treated and that
0: so if you're just to keep track if you 're keeping score, Dave thinks he 's handsome and a great teacher
1: uh, only only uh, relative to most other people <laughs> only relative to the rest of the human race
0: so no, but I, I think that 's right. I actually think that 's a good point. These things start to compound if you are attractive enough, if you 're f- naturally funny, naturally in a good mood, naturally optimistic mystic, then people will start to treat you better, which will reinforce those qualities. It's a snowball effect. And similarly, if it's the other way, if you are naturally shy, naturally depressed, naturally full of anxiety, then people will start to treat you in ways that reinforce those traits. And, you know, uh, my... My wife goes to a lot of she she does outreach for the Houston Ballet and they do programs in all these schools all around Houston and you know she goes to some of the roughest schools that there are that are just run prisons practically and the you know everybody is just constantly in a state of high stress and tension and uh anger and this is every day for 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 years and years there 's no way that 's not going to be reinforce whatever you know negative personality traits you might come into that with and it 's just so much harder to break out of and yet you know when they become adults they 're just going to be judged like everybody
1: else right and and i I bring that up especially to say because like the the temptation which i also have is to just point out as nagel says um that that you know from an aristotelian view well yeah sure your character is it might be locally outside of your control but throughout your life you're responsible for cultivating the right sort of character and that still may be true all of what nagel has said up to this point you still might concede that that is true but But I bring it up to simply point out that even if you accept that it is much harder than you might think on the face of it, like you have much less control probably over the cultivation of your character in that way than you think you do because there are so many influences on it that you're not quite aware of, right? You remember... You remember the time that you resisted temptation and how you vowed to to you know improve your own character, but all of that even the even the situations that gave rise to you to vow to be a better person are still kind of outside of your control
0: well, and this leads to the last form of luck, so you might try at this point to just say okay i 'm going to." Force myself to set aside all that their natural personality temperament character traits, set aside the luck and how things turn out, set aside the luck of the circumstances, and just judge people by their jewel like will as he calls it and and uh, referring to Kant and then he says and this is the last type of moral luck though um, that i that I want to discuss, and it's one that's related to the Um, problem of free will he says if one cannot be responsible for consequences of one's acts due to factors beyond one's control or for antecedents of one's acts that are properties of temperament not subject to one's will, or for the circumstances that pose one's moral choices, then how can one be responsible even for the stripped-down acts of the will itself if they are the product of antecedent circumstances outside of the will's control? The area of genuine agency and therefore of legitimate moral judgment seems to shrink under this scrutiny to an extensionless point— Everything seems to result from the combined influence of factors antecedent and posterior to action that are not within the agent 's control so now this is the deterministic form of mm-hmm. luck that he 's talking about that even those if you could separate you know your your, your temperament and the, the, the circumstances and the way the things turn out and just look at the 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 choices that you make independent of that, well, there's still the question of why you made those choices, and the explanation for that will be due to one of those other three types of luck. So really, this fourth type of luck is just the combination of the other three kinds of luck.
1: And and I have to say that I find that, you know, this short essay a more... uh, a more powerful way to cast into doubt uh, my beliefs about blame and responsibility than the traditional uh, sort of s- tactic where you start with this last case. Because when you start with the, the problem of, you know, everything that is caused is caused by factors, you know, that have been determined from, from, from the moment causality began – I, as I have done before on the podcast, I generally say, well, look, that might be true in this metaphysical sense, but what I'm referring to is simply the difference between acts that result, you know, in, in a very content way, as, as you might mock me for. I, I'm talking about uh, actions that are a result of your agency, Um, being substantively different than actions that are are a result of something that is not your agency. So so I really do mean that for things that you intended to do, you deserve blame in a local sense um, more than for things that you did not intend to do but nonetheless had a bad outcome. And so I usually resist the, the the whole metaphysical freedom question by saying it, it, it's meaningful in a local sense to distinguish between right. things that you intended and things that you didn't. And that's why building the way that nagel does from the inconsistencies in even that view in the local um, sense in, in the, the local, local sense yeah. is more a more powerful way of taking down my my general approach to this question all
0: right, all right so in the time we have left let's talk about his conclusion which Early Tamler, two thousand seven, <laughs> two thousand eight Tamler, you know, the, my paper The Objective Attitude, I I, I led off with a disc- with by quoting him and quoting this this passage where he says uh that this problem has no solution because something in the idea of agency is incompatible with actions being events or people being things, but as the external determinants of what someone has done are gradually exposed, it gradually becomes clear that actions are events and people things. Eventually, nothing remains which can be ascribed to the responsible self, and we are left with nothing but a portion of the larger sequence of events which can be deplored or celebrated, but not blamed or praised. And what I said was, how is this a problem with no solution it's a problem with a solution, and that solution is sk- being skeptical about moral responsibility. Just you come to the conclusion that nobody deserves blame and praise. We have so many Sam Harris listeners. this is his view right
1: hey could i, could I just because I think that the way Nagel said this and the reason yeah. you quoted it is that it's so well said, yeah that as I was reading this i just want i I just want to it to sink in what he's saying and because he says it so elegantly so i'm just going to repeat what you just said i believe that in a sense the problem has no solution because something in the idea of agency is incompatible with actions being events or people being things in that sentence alone yeah. Is he lays bare the tension that he's built, yeah. where where you say yes, that's the heart of it. An action I thought this whole time was different from an event. An action right. is a, something an agent causes. A people uh, people are different things than things, and and he's led us to this. And he said, and and he rips my heart out when he says this because he's he <laughs> right. is offering no solution. He's he's not saying he's not saying like. Uh, but here's the, where the error in this whole way of thinking lies, right. you know, sort of in the spirit of calling this book Mortal Questions, where, where these are just like fuck with you questions. That sentence was fucking with me this morning.
0: He's—I mean—he's setting your like Kantian soul on fire. Essentially, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he's just taking light; he's dousing it with lighter fluid and and setting it on fire. Your jewel, your Kant jewel. If
1: this is true, I should just masturbate, right? I have no. <laughs> you can now
0: I, no. masturbate. <laughs> it's finally. Uh, I'll yeah. recommend some sites and you know. <laughs> uh, um. So so, getting back to my point, I'm glad you like. The, yeah sorry the, yeah so forget. eventually i mean all of this you could read and read more slowly Nothing, so early me was saying but this isn't you it's not it's not a problem with no solution it's a problem with a solution that you just gave. Like, you yourself in that paragraph just gave the solution that we should stop, we should get out of the business of attributing um, blameworthy, you know, like blameworthy judgments, of making blameworthy and praiseworthy judgments. Um, And, but that's not Nagel's conclusion. Nagel's conclusion is, no, this is a fundamental clash of... Uh, perspectives, that we're unable to fully embrace one or the other. And I'll just read another. We are unable to view ourselves simply as portions of the world. And from inside, we have a rough idea of the boundary between what is us and what is not, what we do and what happens to us. What is our personality and what is an accidental handicap? We apply the same essentially internal conception of the self to others. About others, we feel pride, shame, guilt, remorse. Oh no, about ourselves, we feel pride, shame, guilt, remorse, and agent regret. We do not regard our actions and our characters merely as fortunate or unfortunate episodes, though they may also be that. We cannot simply take an external evaluative view of ourselves of what we most essentially are and what we do. And this remains true even when we have seen that we are not responsible for our own existence or our nature or the choices we have to make or the circumstances that give our acts the consequence they have. These acts remain ours and we remain ourselves despite the persuasiveness of the reasons that seem to argue us out of existence.
1: Yeah. So good. So 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 good. good. And, and this is, is insightful in, in such a deep way, which is, is it's exactly right. But, but there's, I could, you know, write a whole paper on this paragraph alone because that is true in a deep way, which I think, I think the temptation of somebody being flippant about this is to simply say, bite the bullet, dude. Right, you're yeah, just wrong that, that about me. yourself, right? Yes. and I think that that misses the point. Um, I think that, that Nagel's accusation here is this: this has, and this is, I guess, what you were getting at. This has no easy solution in the sense that if you really are going to bite the bullet, what that means is doing something that is pretty impossible, which is treating yourself as a thing and your actions as events in a way that, if, it is probably impossible. And, and if you say that you are doing it, you are uh, simply masking your own incoherence. You are, you are actually being inconsistent in a way that you're not willing to admit. You're not being brave and biting the bullet. Right. You are just simply lying about the pull of the belief that you yourself feel as if you could have done otherwise. You feel shame. You feel guilt. You think I should be a better person. And that, and that I think is just descriptively true of our psychology where we use, we say, I really should not be the sort of person who engages in this kind of action. And we use that as a template to judge others, right? And and it's not unreasonable to think they think this about themselves. So, like, let's just treat ourselves as agents.
0: I will say in that paper, the objective attitude, I did my best. It's not that I dismissed it. I did my best to argue against it and to say, no, we can view ourselves as things, actually. And we can view oursel- our actions as part of the larger sequence of events. Um, but I'm not so sure I buy that anymore. I'm more convinced by this paragraph than yeah. i was so, uh, before
1: so here's a question i mean there there is no doubt that there are some things that are uh, cognitive errors or illusions that we we can realize and correct for and so we say well like you know the host of cognitive biases that i'm aware of um that have been so well documented in the the literature i can say like uh, you know, I don't know. Take fra- the framing problem, where like saying the same thing in two different ways really pulls your intuition in, in in different ways. You see that, and you realize, oh, I made an error. So when I like, let me remind myself when I feel the pull of that. Uh, error. Let me remind myself to correct for it. And so then you do that. So so there's that class of, of error that upon reflection, you say, I'm going to do my best to not continue to make this error because it, I, I myself agree that it's irrational. Then there's another kind of cognitive illusion or bias. And l- let's talk about like just plain old perceptual illusions. So when I look at the world around me, like right now I am in my office at home and I am looking at the door and I see a rectangle. But the truth of the matter is that the, it's projecting on my retina a weird sort of distorted parallelogram. And right. if I were an artist, if I were a painter, I would sort of have to force myself to see the weird parallelogram and like correct for that so that I could paint it accurately. Um, but... It's really, really hard. Even the artist doesn't unsee the rectangle. They just go to great lengths to correct for it in order to represent it well. And I hope my analogy is working here because what I can't do is stop treating that door as a rectangle and seeing it as a rectangle. And I think that my view of humans as different from things and as actions as different from events and myself as an agent is something that not only can I not unsee but that in fact it it is a relevant way of interacting with the environment that is in the same way that perceiving the door as a rectangle allows me to correctly know the the size and shape despite the way that it truly is reflecting on my retina um, it what that allows me to do is know that you know for instance, doors don't weirdly change in size and shape when, when they're at an angle. And so I won't run into things. So it's actually a good thing. Um, and, I, and I think that my way out of this is not a deep way out of this. It's just simply to say there is value and perhaps utility in treating humans' agentic actions in this way. Because people view themselves in this way, and I can influence their behavior by giving right. them blame and, and also
0: predict their behavior and predict
1: their behavior by yeah. calling them intentional agents in a yeah. way that doesn't make sense when I'm talking about the object of billi- the motion of billiard balls or whatever. So, this
0: is like the Dennett intentional stance kind of That's idea, right. which we could talk about maybe in some other episode. That you know, that adopting this stance of Pretending that we 're agents in this way, even if it 's not true, is actually useful in it's because it allows us to influence others and predict what they 'll do in, which you know can be extremely useful for us in avoiding being taken advantage of or harmed but i but actually though, I think it 's even deeper than that right because uh, you could imagine somebody arguing, like taking a kind of fictionalist. All right, I know theoretically, and I even, you know, in my heart, that this view is false, but I'm going to continue doing it because it's really useful to me. But like, like a lot of things, like the, I, I, I know ultimately that it's
1: it's false yeah and that's and that maybe is why I was using the analogy that I was using because I think that that's a, a a not the right way either the Dennett way or the fictionalist way is not the right way to to assess this this attitude, which is for for two reasons one it is it is not at all something that requires any effort right there's no there's no need to to actually take this stance. Uh, explicitly it's just it just is the way we see other people and their actions in the way that this is the way and ourselves and this is in the same way that it is the way that i see the door and moreover what it means to be true is is it's not so obvious to me that it is untrue in uh, it's only in the sense that if i mean agency has this metaphysical property that is that is mystical um uh, because here. it is both true that the door is a rectangle and that it is projecting a non-rectangular image on my retina right. and i think that what we would have to do is in the same way that at some point in history artists were able to squint their eye or turn off that part of of their mind that kept telling them yelling at them that door is a tri- is a rectangle they are able to get into this mode of seeing the true shape of it in order to to paint it right that's what we have to do to human beings and i think that's what scientists for instance have to do to human beings in order to study them we right. we get ourselves through through the sort of just sheer effort we get ourselves to get out of the intentional stance for human beings and talk about them as as causally as ca- causally determined as things right yeah
0: i mean so the other option and the one that I, you know, it's, and it's in some ways at the opposite end of where I started because uh, the objective attitude was it started off as a critique of this part of Nagel, but really it was a critique of Strawson. But the other way to go is to say that a lot of these morally evaluative attitudes like guilt and resentment, these kind of blaming attitudes, maybe they don't require this kind of. Kantian like will that we thought and that sort of Nagel right. attributes to us in the first place. Maybe, you know, feeling guilty blame, or resenting somebody and blaming them isn't, you know, we, we don't think it's so fundamentally unfair to, to do that um, if they didn't, if the act didn't spring from some incoherent idea of a will. Um, right. That nobody's even been able to describe what that would even <laughs> right. look like, never There's mind no, yeah. provide evidence for its existence. So, like, you know, so that's the other way that you can go about it. And if so, now I think if this problem has a solution, that's more the solution than right. because Nagle, of I, what you just said.
1: Right. So, so yeah. Nagel seems to think, and I think you're right to point this out, that, um, that the source of the tension must be. A Tacit, implicit, in most cases, perhaps explicit in some cases, but but mostly an implicit belief that that my attitudes, my moral evaluations of other agents for their actions is betraying a um, a, a a notion of agency for which nobody has offered a, a positive description right so he says right. the problem of moral luck cannot be understood without an account of the internal conception of agency and its special connection with the moral attitudes as opposed to other types of value. I do not have such an account, and perhaps it's just a much thinner view of of agency that is giving rise to these intuitions that doesn't actually require anything like a a you know sort of Kantian metaphysics or or anything else that's that deep, but rather just to to. Right here, I'm getting myself into deep trouble, and this betrays that I'm not a philosopher, but but I don't think that it's incoherent for me to treat human actions that stem from local intentions as fundamentally different, in that it's tracking something that I value, and maybe it is just because it's functional and because that's the best way in which we evolve to socially regulate other human beings. Like, maybe it's not that deep, maybe, but... But it is, it's the only user interface I have for other social creatures, Yeah. right? It is the, it's what I have available to me and it is meaningful in that sense and it is true in that sense in, in that, that when you tell me, David, did you do this on purpose? And I say, yes, to be honest, I did this on purpose. And you say, well, then I think that you're, that, that you're, you're bad. You shouldn't have done that. I'm mad at you. And I, Literally say, you know, you're right to be mad at me because, because in fact, I did intend to harm you. So then the
0: question is, why isn't that just the most comfortable resting place here? Again, why is this a problem without a solution? Why can't we go back to that sort of local blaming and praising that we, you know, start that that people naturally tend to do in the first place? And I think Nagel's response to that is, but when you really Think about it when you really start to uh, break that down, you'll find something fundamentally irrational about that, fundamentally unfair about it, and that's equally something that you can't help but do. Right. If, um, you know, that's, that's no <laughs> less a part of your fundamental experience. It's no less a fundamental part of your experience than the experience yourself, experiencing yourself as an agent. And so you really have two fundamentally inescapable perspectives here that are inconsistent with one another. And again, this is just like the absurd, right? Like two fundamentally inescapable perspectives uh, about life and justification of our actions and meaningfulness and purpose of our actions and both of them are inconsistent and we can yeah, like, if we're th- being honest with ourselves we just have to recognize that.
1: Yeah and, and that and, and that I I I agree that this is the power of Nagel's particular framing of this problem. Because he is not again saying Hey, I know that you have a level of intuitions that is saying this thing, but let me be smart and tell you that now we know that, it, you know, it's just neurons or whatever, you yeah. know, it, that's, it's not that kind of critique. He's not saying we're we are smart enough to know that, that uh, now the way causality works, that humans don't work. He is saying, no, like uh, we don't even need to go there on your own same, same level. Of intuitive understanding of the world, you believe two things that are fundamentally inconsistent. Right. Right. It is it did not require fancy physics or MRIs or or (laughs) or, you know an all-knowing God um, who is in control of everything to threaten this. It is the mere first level inconsistency in your intuitions that I am telling you is, they are fundamentally incompatible. And, and
0: that, that will show you that you have uh, these incompatible, even it, it, at the exactly. local level. Yeah.
1: Even at the local level. Yeah. And, and it's powerful. That's why I think it really is a more powerful, you know, uh, I, I think that at, at best, what we can do is find some sort of equilibrium between these conflicting intuitions to manage when they rear their heads, right? Like when, when they rear their heads, like, and especially in the case of like the law, where we're actually where there are deep consequences to whether we determine that somebody is morally responsible, um, or whether they were whether it was outside of their control in a meaningful way, like that. That the best you can do is say "fuck," like I like we're just going to have to hash it out, right? We're going to have to find find some solution that is the lesser. Uh, the lesser of two evils in the sense that like which which intuition we let win might have deep consequences for and
0: abandon the idea that there's just one rational way of, if you're ego, one rational way of approaching that problem
1: right right and i and i have to say that um i deeply respect the way that he ends this by literally saying i do (laughs) not I do not have such an account. He, he. in the truest way, he's being honest about this. He, he is not, he's not using this tension as, and giving us a simple solution that should be obvious because you're so dumb. You didn't see it. He's saying, nah, like here's another source of fucked upness about he, the human condition. Let me move on to uh, chapter number three. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you know, like, and this, the view from nowhere is sort of bringing a lot of these threads together of these sort of fundamentally incompatible ways of understanding the world from the inside and also from the outside. So,
1: Do, do you want to you know, understand me from the inside?
0: I want to <laughs> feel you from the inside. Uh, I want to feel what you feel. All right. Um, that is... That's all we have, people. you're this is a problem. We, we also don't have a solution except oh, no. to keep listening to very bad wizards, to keep getting in touch with us, to consider supporting us, and we will be back uh, next time. Bye. Good man, just a very bad wizard.